0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: I'm Mariana Vieira and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.
0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you with us. Back here Even in August, this is how committed we are. The whole of Chatham House, honestly, has gone away, it feels like. The amount of of out-of-office messages I'm getting in my emails the whole time. But the podcast persists. Not only persists, it thrives. And we're really delighted that you're still with us. I hope you're listening to us from a beach or by the side of a pool somewhere. We've both... The whole team actually has been away over these past few weeks, but we've still been recording interviews and we've got two fantastic conversations lined up for this week. And one of them, of course, is with my esteemed co-host, Mariana. Mariana, how are things?
1: Things are great. I mean, things were better a week ago when I was back in sunny Cornwall trying (laughs) Cornish ice cream for the first time and questioning what was inside a Cornish pastry. But how are things with you, Ben? (laughs)
0: Well, I'm just really delighted that you've been sampling West Country culture, the land of my birth. That sounds lovely. I'm fine as well. I'm slightly regretting the fact that last week I was in the Lake District and it felt like it was November. It was cold and and rainy and grey. And now I'm back in London. It's sitting overlooking my street in gorgeous sunshine (laughs) and thinking that somehow I've got these weeks reversed. This just seems... (laughs) Unfair. But enough about how I feel about the weather, because I feel like I talk about that far too much. Mariana, why don't you tell us about your interview for this week?
1: Of course. So this week we spoke about Lebanese politics and I talked to Dr. Lina Katib, who's the director of the Middle East and North Africa program here at Chatham House. So the starting point of our conversation was basically this research paper that Lina wrote earlier this summer on how Hezbollah holds sway over the Lebanese state. It was really interesting to hear from Lina as she talks about Hezbollah as this hybrid actor and also how its involvement in Lebanese politics relies and also fuels the endemic and widespread corruption that overspills into the economic situation of the country as well. So I found it really fascinating to hear from Lina's forward looking assessment of what are the prospects for change in the country. How about you, Ben? Who did you speak to?
0: I spoke to Stephen Feldstein, who is from the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. And we spoke about his new book from Oxford University Press titled The Rise of Digital Repression. And we were speaking really about his views on how technology is changing governance systems, how authoritarian states around the world are employing different technological innovations to control their populations, and, and the implications of that for those citizens but also more broadly for the international system so yeah it was uh pretty sobering and quite concerning to have that conversation not the most uplifting way to spend a day of your holiday but very very important and fascinating nonetheless and and steve was a great guest
1: awesome sounds very broad-ranging um shall we have a listen So now I'm joined by Dr. Lina Katib, who is the director of the Middle East and North Africa program here at Chatham House. Hi, Lina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I thought I would start with your most recent research paper for Chatham House, where you examine Hezbollah's influence over Lebanese politics and society. Throughout the paper, you often repeat this caveat that Hezbollah behaves, quote unquote, like other political parties. An example of this would be when it comes to taking advantage of the weak infrastructure of the Lebanese state. But how is Hezbollah different from other political parties in the same political system? Well,
2: in the paper, I am very keen to show that the problem in Lebanon is the political system, because it's a deeply flawed political system. Because it's a system based on the sharing of power between different sectarian groups, it has meant that these groups do not work for the national interest. They are ultimately working for the interests of the different uh, sectarian leaders' constituencies. Now, Hezbollah has become one of the elite political parties in Lebanon and therefore has now become very much a key component of this political system. And because the political system is built on lack of accountability, unfortunately, Hezbollah has managed to behave in many ways that are similar to other parties in terms of uh, using state positions in order to divert resources to its constituents or get access to funding in illegal ways. But the key difference between Hezbollah and the other political parties in Lebanon is that it is the only party in possession of weapons. All the parties in Lebanon that had fought one another during the war had to hand over their weapons to the state when the war ended. But Hezbollah was given an exception on the basis that it is defending Lebanon from Israel. However, Hezbollah has managed to use its weapons to intimidate both its allies and its opponents in Lebanon. And in this way, when you have a political actor that is also armed this means that there is an an imbalance of power going on. And so Hezbollah has managed to intimidate others and act with impunity, I would say, in 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 a different way from the others, simply because of its possession of
1: weapons. The two points that you just mentioned about not only the weapons, but also this resulting impunity, speak a lot to this point that you make in the research paper about Hezbollah being a hybrid actor. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what this classification entails and what are the implications for Lebanese politics.
2: This is, for me, a very useful designation calling Hezbollah a hybrid actor because hybrid means a group that is both a non-state actor and at the same time a state actor, meaning an actor given legitimacy by the state. Now, the reason why Hezbollah managed to retain its weapons is because At the time when the Lebanese civil war ended, Lebanon was still under Israeli occupation and the Lebanese army was weak. So it was deemed necessary to grant this exception to Hezbollah as a kind of auxiliary armed group that would help in national defense. And therefore, Hezbollah was not merged into the Lebanese army or into state institutions. It remained independent. But it was granted legitimacy by the state because of the uh, national defense role. And therefore, it has become a hybrid actor. This, in a way, complicates any discussion that people might have about the future of hybrid actors like Hezbollah, because when a group is granted legitimacy by the state yet is independent, it ultimately pursues its own interests, first and foremost, and makes it very difficult for the group to have any incentive to merge with official military entities within the state. So Hezbollah in a way enjoys this hybrid status because I argue in the paper, it grants it power
1: without responsibility. This really important keyword you mentioned, which is legitimacy. Hezbollah's exceptional position is legitimized in terms of the national security apparatus. But if you think about it in terms of society and militarization of the Lebanese society, How popular is Hezbollah as this hybrid actor and how does it manage to stay in power? Well, in the beginning, Hezbollah enjoyed, I would say, significant
2: support amongst the Lebanese because Lebanon was under Israeli occupation. And then when Israel finally withdrew from Lebanon in 2000, Hezbollah enjoyed support on the basis of having succeeded in its liberation mission. And the liberation mission transformed into a defense mission. So again, People continued to support Hezbollah on the basis that it was still needed to defend Lebanon from any potential future threat. However, in 2005, when the former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafik Hariri was assassinated, fingers were pointed at Hezbollah as being behind this assassination alongside the regime of Bashar al-Assad of Syria. And therefore, the country came to be divided. A lot of people who had supported Hezbollah before 2005 came to criticize Hezbollah after 2005. In 2006, when Israel attacked Lebanon, many people also stood with Hezbollah once again because they saw Hezbollah as being a defender of Lebanon in that war. However, not long after, in 2008, Hezbollah sent its fighters to Beirut to intimidate its political opponents And this public intimidation once again shifted public perceptions against Hezbollah. So you can see it has been a bit of a roller coaster in terms of people's perceptions of Hezbollah and the degree of their support. But when things really shifted in the opposite direction for Hezbollah is when Hezbollah started intervening in the war in Syria. A lot of people who had been supportive of Hezbollah's retention of weapons in the name of Lebanese national defense questioned why these weapons were now being deployed outside Lebanon. This had not happened in the past before the Syrian conflict began. So since then, I would say that the majority of people in Lebanon actually do not support Hezbollah. But because Hezbollah is the main political and military actor in the country, and it has used coercion to stay in power, there is very little that its opponents can do to kind of stand up to it. And this is where Lebanon is today. So I would say The political system in Lebanon began and functioned for decades as a system based on consensus amongst political elites, but it has now transformed into a system in which in a very de facto kind of practical way, there is one actor that is dominant over the
1: others, and that is Hezbollah. Speaking to Hezbollah's dominance, but also its decline in support from the population, Would you say that there is a strong alternative in terms of opposition? You mentioned the opponents briefly, but is there a viable alternative in terms of leadership? Unfortunately, there isn't right now because the
2: opponents to Hezbollah politically happen to be the same political elites that are part of the corrupt political system that is in place in Lebanon today. So what is happening right now in Lebanon is a very, very small but growing movement that is against all of these actors. And this is new, because in the past, people may oppose Hezbollah, but then in a way place themselves within one of the political parties opposing Hezbollah. But what Lebanon has been witnessing, especially in the last five or six years, is the formation of new independent political parties that come from outside the political elite. These new parties want reform in Lebanon. They want a secular system, not a sectarian system. They want accountability. They are right now too small to make a big difference, but I think the country needs to start somewhere. So I would say the hope is not in Hezbollah's traditional political opponents, but in these new emerging political actors. But it will be quite some time before they become a real challenger, whether to Hezbollah or to the rest of the political parties ruling Lebanon.
1: And while these parties are sort of building up their constituent base, I noticed that we've talked about politics and society, but we have not yet touched upon the emerging economic crisis and also the alarming rates of inflation in the country. Could you tell us a bit more about the current economic prospects of the country and to what extent are these linked to this political landscape of instability? The economic
2: problem that Lebanon is facing today is largely the result of the corrupt political system in place. As I said, because the system is based on consensus amongst the political elites, this has meant that over the years, these elites may have been political opponents, but whenever they perceived a threat to the status quo, they managed to get over their differences and cooperate against any threat to the status quo, namely threat coming from mobilization among citizens in Lebanon. So for example, in 2019, there were protests in Lebanon calling for the system to change. And these protests were met with violent crackdowns by the Lebanese state and its institutions, as well as by informal actors affiliated with some of the ruling parties, namely Hezbollah and its main ally, the Amal movement. And so you can see that this political system has been resistant to change. But meanwhile, because it's been in existence for so long, Over the years, it has managed to practically erode state resources. So the state is now basically bankrupt in Lebanon because these elites, when they kind of cooperate, they don't just cooperate to stay in power. They also cooperate to share the pie. They cooperate to benefit economically so that they have become economic elites, not just political elites. And they're doing this at the expense of the Lebanese state and the Lebanese people. So Lebanon, when it comes to its ministries, has faced huge shortages. Basic goods are barely available in in many cases. Right now, there is a shortage of medicine, for example, a shortage of fuel. And this is ultimately the result of rampant corruption in the country. Because had these resources not been stolen, had the state not been used, as a profiteering mechanism for these elites, perhaps the country wouldn't be where it is today. Coupled with this, none of these elites who were in power designed economic strategies that were viable for Lebanon. They, on the contrary, designed some sort of financial engineering mechanism to kind of give the impression that the Lebanese economy was stable when in reality it wasn't. So uh, we go back to the political system as the main driver behind the financial crisis in Lebanon
1: today. It's fascinating to hear how the economic and political elements are so intrinsically linked, which is obviously not just the case in Lebanon, but throughout or across the globe. In your opinion, and when it comes to Lebanon, what needs to change and in what time frame in order to improve the prospects of economic recovery and political change in Lebanon? What Lebanon desperately needs is reform. The international
2: organizations that have been recently talking to Lebanon about a potential loan like the IMF or about other kinds of assistance, such as from the EU, have been insisting that this assistance or aid or loans can only happen if Lebanon engages in serious reforms. The problem is that the political elites in Lebanon have been resistant to this because they still believe that these international actors will still bank on them staying in power because they believe that the West will not want to take a risk and have potential political unknowns around the country in Lebanon. So they think basically that these international organizations are bluffing. And this is why the process of forming a government in Lebanon has been stalling for almost two years now, because these elites think they can just buy time and eventually these international organizations are going to give up and just send money to Lebanon regardless. And then, of course, they would profit from that. So what Lebanon desperately needs is reform. But we know because the political elites are still in charge, reform is not going to come from the top. So, what is needed is for the international organizations to stick to their principles and not give aid to Lebanon without reforms. So, conditionality is key. And from below, what is needed is for these new emerging political parties in Lebanon and civil society actors who are trying to mobilize is to find whatever openings they can in order to have some reforms in place, even at a very low level. Because again, we need to start somewhere and the reform is not going to be wholesale. So if they start with incremental changes from below, I think this could be the foot in the door that eventually can grow. And perhaps this way they can also demonstrate to the international community that there is an alternative in Lebanon worth supporting.
1: And as you mentioned, that would be the foot in the door. I was thinking to pick up your metaphor, in what ways would you see Hezbollah taking their foot out of the door? So what role in this reform that you're putting forward, what role do you see for the Hezbollah in the future of the country?
2: I mean, right now, unfortunately, I do not see Hezbollah changing the way it is behaving in Lebanon because it doesn't have a serious challenge. I personally think that the key change for Hezbollah will happen at a regional level rather than a Lebanese level. And here we have to remember that although we're talking about Lebanon, it is not an island that is not connected to the regional picture. Actually, Lebanon is a key component of the Syria conflict. It is a key component of Iran's regional role in the Middle East. And we have to, as international observers, Remember that you cannot, in a way, solve Lebanon without solving these other issues as well. So I think instead of expecting Hezbollah to change its behavior in Lebanon, kind of from within, what's going to happen is if, let's say, U.S. foreign policy regarding Iran's regional role shifts, if the U.S. develops the political will to end the conflict in Syria, and also there's the Palestine connection, if. Somehow there is a resolution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. All of these will have a huge impact on Hezbollah and its power in Lebanon. And therefore, I will say that ultimately change is both about what happens in Lebanon. As I said, you know, the political actors on the ground can act, but we cannot remove this from the big international and regional
1: picture. And to that point you just made about the regional factors, which one would you place as the most significant development that could lead to a change in the current situation in Lebanon?
2: I would say under the circumstances, very pragmatically speaking, unfortunately, considering that the Israel-Palestine conflict does not look like it's heading towards resolution anytime soon. However, we are seeing some movement regarding Iran, mainly because of the nuclear deal and, and the U.S., wanting to reactivate the deal, I would say there is more potential in looking at Iran's regional role. If the U.S. manages to come up with a comprehensive strategy regarding Iran's regional role, then Lebanon is going to be a component of this strategy.
1: Great. And finally, I wanted to ask your thoughts about what role for the West, which you briefly mentioned just before, but also in the research paper, So there's basically this Cambridge professor called Andrew Arsan, whose book on Lebanon I read recently, and he talks about how Lebanese politicians have a propensity to enlist foreign support. And he basically sees this as a function of Lebanese factions seeking to gain advantage over each other. So do you agree with this statement? And what role, if any, can external stakeholders and international organizations play in this context?
2: I agree with the statement, and I wrote about this last year in the immediate aftermath of the Beirut port explosion. I said that the way Lebanese political leaders who are now ruling the country deal with people in Lebanon is through patron-client relationships. And unfortunately, the relationship between these political elites and their international backers is also a patron-client relationship. So, the patronage is actually cascading down in Lebanon. These political actors seek foreign support, whether from regional governments, mainly Gulf governments or Iran, or even from the West, like France or others. They use these relationships in the competition they have with one another as a way to bolster their political positions and also to gain access to resources. Plus, it also gives them legitimacy. So what I said in my, in my piece when I wrote about this last year is that these international actors should stop acting as patrons for the politicians in the status quo in Lebanon. I think this would go a long way towards sending a strong message about reform to these people who are now in charge of the country.
1: Thank you so much, Lina. I think I'll leave it on that rather more hopeful note. We'll link Lina's research paper on Hezbollah and the Lebanese state in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining us once again.
2: A pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Okay, so it's great to be joined now by Stephen Feldstein from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Stephen is an expert on the intersections of technology, democracy, and human rights. And his new book is titled The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance. And it was published earlier this year by our friends at Oxford University Press. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on Undercurrents.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I wonder if you could begin just by giving us an overview of what you were aiming to do with this book.
3: So, you know, the basic premise is that digital technology is rapidly reshaping politics, society, and how leaders govern. And I think there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of interest in this issue, but there hasn't always been as much of a rigorous understanding of what exactly these trends look like, who is driving them, uh, and where are they most prevalent. So, the real goal of the book was to kind of get a much more thorough and complete understanding about how to define and understand these trends, where they're going, and also to think about and give policymakers some ideas for ways to push back, particularly democracies, ways to push back against the use of digital tools to surveil, censor, and manipulate information when it comes to autocratic countries.
0: So maybe we could dive in then into the trends that you describe in the book. Could you maybe give us a sense of what you really think the major shifts are, what technology is enabling in terms of governance systems?
3: So I, I think you know one, one thing without question is that as we continue to see people rely more and more uh, in the digital world, particularly accelerated as a result of the pandemic, uh, you see that governments are also adopting new tools in very serious ways to control the spread of information, to suppress dissent when needed, and really to sort of use different digital instruments as, a, as part of their governance, as part of their playbook for governing. And so, you know, one of the big trends and, and one of the things I wanted to see, it was, you know, I think we all believe that dictators, authoritarian governments are more likely to use these tools as part of their overall strategies for control. But is that true? And so the book breaks down and looks at different data associated with that and actually does find that a country that already has a high level of oppression is much more likely. That's a predictor that they will then use digital technologies as part of their governing strategies. Uh, but there, there was a couple of interesting insights that, that derived from that. So one of which is that authoritarian countries may all use digital technology as part of their repressive uh, approaches to some degree, but they do so in very different ways. So in other words, the type of techniques you would see China use in terms of mass surveillance, the great firewall when it comes to censorship of internet content uh, is very different than what you would see in another type of authoritarian country like a Venezuela or an Ethiopia. Uh, and so there's a lot of different factors that go into that but essentially authoritarians use very unique combinations in terms of how they repress. I mean, the second thing that was kind of a surprise uh, and that will be a surprise to a number of people is that you know while authoritarian countries are more likely to use these tools Many democracies, particularly weaker democracies, are also very large practitioners of these strategies. And so we look at countries like India, or even countries in the EU like Hungary and Poland. These are all places that have used a variety of tactics. Uh, India, for example, leaves the world when it comes to the shutting down of the internet. Uh, Hungary has been uh, linked to spyware most recently uh, in terms of its government spying on political opposition figures. Uh, and so you know, w- democracies are not immune at all from governments using these tools towards political benefit. And I think that's something that we all have to think about very seriously in terms of what that
0: means. I mean, you've mentioned so many different examples there. I just wondered if you had a sense of how the governments that you've been studying are justifying or legitimizing the use of these technologies. I mean, there's some argument, I suppose, that you could make to citizens that there is a balance to strike a negotiation between Privacy on the one hand and security on the other, and that maybe if certain liberties around, around your rights to privacy are lessened, then the flip side of that is that you can fight crime more effectively or guarantee other forms of individual security. I just wondered if you had a sense of the sort of narratives that are being created around the use of these technologies.
3: I would answer that in two ways. So, first, there are a number of common justifications that are used when it comes to providing a pretext for cracking down on online uh, expression. So national security, anti-terrorism statutes are one. Public order, which is closely linked to that, is a third. Actually, more recently, we've seen with the pandemic, the idea of dangerous information going out and um, undermining uh, health outcomes has been something that a number of different countries have used. Uh, And then of course, you know, there's been a really large proliferation of countries that have adopted Donald Trump's fake news moniker uh, as justification for putting in place supposedly counter disinformation laws that are really uh, a proxy for censoring legitimate criticism. So that's kind of one way I, I would sort of frame that. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting, though, is that you know in many respects, digital repression is a softer form of oppression that you would than what you would traditionally see. So rather than locking up masses of people or having security agents uh, go into the streets when there are demonstrators and firing on crowds. These techniques allow governments to wield more subtly tools that will have similar outcomes in terms of suppressing protesters or suppressing civil society, civic activists, uh, but it will do so in a much less publicly visible way. So when spyware is deployed by an intelligence service to snoop on different government critics, Lots of people don't actually know that's happening, and that's what makes the revelations from the recent investigations by the Washington Post consortium so, so I think revealing. So interesting is that so many of these tools are actually wielded in very clandestine ways, and so that there actually isn't necessarily a need to justify using these tools in all instances. In many respects, countries will just do it not talk about it, and citizens won't pay a a ton of attention until you get a big revelation that comes about.
0: You just mentioned the recent revelations around spyware that were revealed as part of the Pegasus report. I just wondered if maybe you could tell us a bit more about those, unpack that for our listeners who maybe haven't been following that story, and and how does it interact with the arguments you were making in your book? Well, you know, what's
3: interesting is that none of what came out came as a as a big surprise to me. And, and in fact, you know, in my book, I include a number of uh, examples. And uh, even I include a data set I put together that kind of lists 64 or 65 countries around the world that have been documented to have links to spyware vendors. So uh, a lot of this stuff is already really, was already out there. I think what was interesting about this investigation is that it sort of put all the pieces together. The bottom line in terms of what this uh, investigation was talking about is that Governments, especially ones with lower levels of capabilities, have been accessing programs from different vendors, often from Israel, but also from countries in the EU and even the United States, and taking these programs and then in a clandestine manner, implanting software that allows them to snoop on all manner of communications, digital communications taking place from targets. So often what the software enables is that you can inject it into smartphones without the user actually knowing that it's there. It then will allow the person who's wielding this software to read emails, to read text messages, to see and listen in on phone calls, or to track locations based on location monitoring. And so what was I think the, the kind of big reveal when it came to this investigation was that it's extremely widespread, that a lot of companies based in you know fairly strong democracies are culpable when it comes to proliferating this technology to bad regimes, to dictatorial regimes, and that there's been a lot of harms and that you have journalists who have been targeted, politicians who have been targeted, all different manners of people. And that this technology is very invasive, uh, it's very widespread, and actually doesn't even cost all that much at the end of the day. So it just is another chip, I think, when it comes to people's preconceived notions of privacy. That at one point, you know, you may have thought there are ways via encryption, anonymity to be able to have a private conversation and not have it broadcast out. And this shows that especially if you are important enough, or large enough, or more prominent enough critic of a government, there's very few safe places left to go, at least on a, you know, from a digital perspective.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. I wanted to ask you a bit about, I mean, obviously, a lot of what we've been speaking about so far has been governments surveilling their own citizens and using these tools as, as a way of sort of maintaining kind of domestic control but but this last example that we were talking about there is shows how these tools are also being used by intelligence services as well as instruments to surveil foreign powers and and, and foreign actors i just wondered if you could tell us how far in the intelligence realm these technologies are really a departure from previous techniques or strategies employed by the likes of the NSA and and other organizations is this really new stuff is this breaking previous norms or or is it just continuation by other means
3: it is not really new it is a continuation of pre-existing practices ongoing practices and and capabilities in fact what's interesting is that so much of this commercial software derives from people who formerly were employed you know by the Israeli intelligence services Shinbet or by the NSA. Uh, there's been documented projects that use ex-NSA operatives in places like the UAE to track different dissidents. So when it comes to sort of state-to-state relations in the use of surveillance technology to listen in on, on adversaries, this is a very widespread, long-standing, common practice. And so to that extent, it's not new. I think what is newer is this more internally focused domestic end, especially in countries that don't have Any kind of protections when it comes to the rule of law about how far government agents will go in terms of snooping in on ordinary citizens. At least in places, liberal democracies, whether it's the UK or the US or other places, there there is legislation in place that dictates very specifically, you know, which types of citizens can be spied upon and what kind of authorizations are required in which to do so. But when you have a a dictator or you know authoritarian regime, Russia, let's say, there are few to no constraints when it comes to how these tools can be deployed and to what ends uh, from a domestic basis.
0: That's very interesting, yeah. And and I I think the idea that this increased sort of attention on how governments are surveilling their own citizens is, is something that's very new. I wonder if you could tell us what international legal frameworks exist to govern these practices. Is there any process at the United Nations or within other bodies that are attempting to regulate what states can and cannot do in this regard? Yeah,
3: I mean, there's very little. There's sort of nascent efforts, I would say, kind of emerging norms that people are referencing or trying to use as a way to constrain behavior. So let's take surveillance, for example. I mean, there is a kind of growing consensus that the pillars for determining when surveillance can be used is the ideas of necessity, proportionality, and legitimacy, right? That the measure, the surveillance measure has to be necessary for and linked to a national security aim. That aim itself has to be legitimate and that it should be narrowly tailored specifically for that aim and then authorized in law, right? Now, this is just a very kind of, this is like a loose guideline. And frankly, it's, it's violated all the time by different countries. But if you were to sort of look to a body of law or jurisprudence or norms that sort of say, how can we constrain and bring some order to what otherwise seem to be kind of rampant abuses of surveillance or, or of censorship, that would be one. I think another would be kind of looking to existing international human rights law, or you know, the ICCPR would be one type of body, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which put in place very uh, universal standards when it comes to free expression, uh, freedom of association, and so by extension, there's debates about whether this applies to the internet or not. But most agree that when you censor a person's ability to express themselves online, when you block a website, when you disrupt the internet, that this it represents a violation of article 19 of the ICCPR, you know, the free expression provision. And so, you know, there are norms out there, there is a kind of structure, it's not really enforceable, and when it comes to the digital side, I think there's still kind of more work that needs to be done to sort of provide the same level of protections that people generally agree ought to be applied offline as should be applied uh,
0: online. I wanted to ask you about the role of commercial entities, the technology companies that are creating these systems to be used by governments. Do you think that there is any scope for trying to limit the development of these systems at source? Or is the real problem how these systems are being used, not that they exist in the first place? Well, it's a little bit of both.
3: I mean let's take something like facial recognition. I mean some people would would argue that facial recognition as a biometric tool itself is something that ought to be stopped that it, it's something that provides so many harm as compared to the benefits and there's so many kind of flaws that it's something that you know ought to not be continued. you know I personally don't think that's realistic. I think it's impossible to stop innovation and technology from where it's going. And so a better way is to put together a framework such as the eu uh, and others are doing, where you kind of establish what are acceptable practices when it comes to, and guidelines, when it comes to how this technology ought to be used, particularly when it comes to law enforcement, right? That you have very strict bounds in terms of how they are applied and how they're linked to, you know, kind of criminal investigations, things along those lines. And you just try to keep a close leash on it. But I think the idea that you can just sort of put a cap on certain types of technology, uh, other than, you know, very specific weapons that lead to destructive potential like nuclear weapons, you know, I don't think that's realistic and, and, and unlikely to occur, at least in terms of the technologies that I have talked about in the
0: book. I suppose a related question I wanted to ask was about the capacity of governments to understand these developments and and to attempt to regulate their use. It's something that I remember coming up around the questions regarding Facebook's role in the 2016 election in the United States and listening to Senate committee hearings where you had these very experienced senior politicians trying to address Mark Zuckerberg and his uh, employees about how these systems work and, and displaying actually that they don't have a grasp of how the technology itself functions. Do you think that that is a problem that, that government systems are they're always going to be kind of behind the curve of technological development? Or do you think that there are ways around that? Maybe that's not so much of an issue as, <laughs> as the media suggested at the time.
3: Yeah, no, I'm sort of thinking back to the sort of question that was asked I think it was by a senator from Utah to Zuckerberg about how does Facebook make money anyway and you know Zuckerberg said we sell ads it's you know? <laughs> <laughs> sort of like this like basic premise if you don't understand that then how are you possibly going to regulate social media you know look I think there's a there's been a, a, a catch-up period right I, I think there's there's naturally a lag particularly when you kind of enter a, a bit of a transcendent moment uh, or a transformational moment where technology has sort of leapt ahead from where it was. And, and I think that in the last 10, 20 years, that certainly is an accurate way to describe kind of where things have gone when it comes to internet adoption and how people have changed the way they communicate. So in that sense, I think there's been a bit of a settling out. I think it, it, we would be hard pressed at this point, especially as we kind of look over the next few years for many of the same basic questions about social media. How does Facebook work? You know how does twitter what is what is twitter uh, you know i think most policymakers have at least a generalized understanding of, of how these platforms work and so in that sense you are always going to have a little bit of a catch up right where innovation moves ahead of, of of regulation which then lags and and frankly that that's probably okay i think you don't want to get to a point where you're stifling any kind of innovation anyway but i do think that at least in the washington context and in many other places that policymakers have gotten smart on these issues. And they've also brought in experts who understand very well uh, what's happening. I mean, I look at sort of the United States and the Biden administration, the type of people who have been recruited to come in, people like Tim Wu, Lena Khan, who have written articles and groundbreaking books uh, to describe the effects of technologies. You know, these are not novices, uh, and they are directly in policymaking roles, making regulations that will oversee and, and shape government role and response uh, to these technologies. So in that sense, you know, I think we're in a better place and there's been a lot of catch up.
0: Now, a lot of what we've spoken about so far has been pretty depressing, pretty scary. The examples that you drew on around the enhanced repression that is enabled by these technologies. But something that you that you mentioned in your book also is I suppose technology's emancipatory potential as well. I mean, you'd say it's, it's also increasingly a tool of resistance. So I just wondered if you could Tell us a bit about that aspect of the book and and what you really see emerging there. Well, you
3: know, so it's interesting. I mean, I think we've kind of gone through a lot of different phases, especially when it comes to information and communications technologies. So initially, you know, back in around 2011, 2012, I mean, we really referred to these technologies as liberation technologies, that they were providing the means for ordinary citizens to Push back against dictators and really have a voice in participating in the politics of their of their countries. And now we're kind of in a very sort of pessimistic period where we are really focused on the ability of governments to exploit these technologies against citizens. And you know neither narrative is completely true. You know liberation the liberation technology idea was never as good was never as fulsome as we wanted to think it was. Likewise. While I do believe, and obviously the premise of my book is sort of looking at ways that governments are wielding these tools to uh, reinforce their their strategies, you know I don't think it's it's completely one sided either. I and mean, there are many examples of ways that people are are organizing and maintaining resistance against uh, regimes via Telegram, via Signal, through WhatsApp, through Facebook groups, and so forth. Uh, I mean, I do, I do think, on balance, at the moment that things are weighted more heavily on the negative side in favor of governments and repressive. Uh, agendas, but I don't think that this is a uh, inevitable or permanent state of affairs. I do think that there will come new cycles of resistance and new ways to harness these tools for more virtuous, beneficial, and democratic outcomes. In that sense, we have to also look to the you know potential power of these tools to really do good, to help people get more involved in their in their governance. To You know, I mean, just take COVID-19, you know, we've focused so much on the disinformation, the anti-vaccination campaigns, uh, the ways in which kind of polluted information is spilling over. And yet on a fundamental level, what digital technology has allowed us to do is essentially shield ourselves from the worst of the infection by working from home, by doing Zoom meetings and communicating and maintaining links. Without having to force ourselves back into offices until vaccination levels are sufficient, until infection levels are down, and so that's a huge benefit, right? That's a huge new change that 20 years ago would not have been possible. And so, you know, we do have to look at the productive benefits, we have to look at the health uh, outcomes as well, uh, and not only focus on the negative side of these tools.
0: We wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for Zoom. So, thank you, Mr. Zoom. I just wanted to ask you one more question, looking a bit to the future, and obviously there are so many different ways that technology is manifesting itself within this picture that you've outlined and so many different interesting strands to your book. I suppose I'd like to ask you to finish by telling us which area of technological repression most concerns you, like what keeps you up at night, what particular way the technology is being used makes you really concerned? and then also say that we don't end on a really down note. If you were part of the administration in the US or whether you were working on this at an international level, what would be the one thing that you would change tomorrow if you could about this?
3: Good questions. So I want to point to two trends that I think uh, are really important to think about that worry me. So one of which is that one way we like to think about where things are going when it comes to digital technology is essentially an internet that's divided into like a democratic internet, an authoritarian one. So an authoritarian one led by China and Russia, a democratic one led by EU, US, and and others. And I think what we're really seeing is less of that bifurcation and much more of a splintering across all sorts of different models and all sorts of different interventions. So what that means is that you have countries that formerly would have kind of aligned themselves with the kind of democratic norm model of internet use, uh, countries like Nigeria, countries like India, uh, Turkey, you know, many others, but now have put instituted their own blend where they borrow some of the censorship and surveillance tactics of China and Russia and others. They also maintain some of the kind of open expression ideals, but they kind of bring those together in their own mix. And so what we're seeing is is really kind of a norm degradation, uh, a deterioration where many of the kind of weaker democracies, quasi-authoritarian countries, elect you know places that are not you know your kind of fulsome liberal democracies, are kind of proliferating technologies and devising rules that align with their sovereign interests and go against democratic principles. And I find that extremely worrisome. I think that trend is going to accelerate further. I think the second thing we haven't really talked too much about is the effect of China. You know, now I think sometimes the kind of US China competition lens is overly used when it comes to understanding what these technologies mean. I don't think that China is, is the primary driver. Of the use of these tools. I would look to more domestic influence, but I wouldn't dismiss China's modeling effect either. I think there are a couple aspects to what China is doing that we should all be concerned about. One, it provides a lot of parallel modeling. So The PRC provides a showcase for how governments and, and the state can control, surveil, monitor uh, citizens uh, on a digital basis. Two, it is exporting particularly digital infrastructure and platforms. So ICT networks, 5G capabilities that incorporate surveillance and censorship facets, making it just that much easier for countries that already are inclined in an authoritarian direction to exploit these, these tools. Uh, and so you know, as China continues to grow in its political power and, and economic influence, I think it presents a really challenging frame to uh, how digital technologies will evolve correspondingly uh, as well. Now, what would I change? What would I do? You know, there was an announcement two days ago that the Biden administration is officially convening a summit for democracy uh, that will bring together all you know countries that are democratically inclined, both emerging and liberal democracies, to kind of find ways to work together, bring together new consensus and norms when it comes to a range of issues, including technology and its use. And so, certainly, I think that's a great step. Since that's already happening, I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna use that as my thing that I, I would ask for, but. I would have asked for it if the Biden administration hadn't already announced it. Uh, what I would say, actually, I would look domestically. I think we need a much more hands-on approach, uh, certainly in the United States, when it comes to guarding, safeguarding user privacy, so putting place a privacy framework, and really constraining the ability of big tech platforms, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and many others in terms of how they act. I, I think that the level of disinformation, the poisonous discourse... Uh, is really out of control and and has spilled over in ways that have led to violence and and continuing amounts of polarization and i think that even small tweaks in terms of having platforms like Facebook deprioritize engagement and the kind of nasty discourse that its algorithms bring to the top of the news feed in favor of more sober-minded more publicly beneficial information that would be kind of where, I would really like to see change, but where I also think it's going to be exceedingly difficult in which to do so.
0: Absolutely. Well, maybe we should have you back on in a couple of years and see see how the picture has changed. Stephen Feldstein, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Stephen's book, The Rise of Digital Repression, is published by Oxford University Press and is available in all good bookshops now. We'd definitely recommend it.
1: Well, wow, Ben, that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I hope you, as our listeners, enjoyed both interviews. And if you did, it would be great if you could leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps other people find and engage with our content much more easily. And I think that's it from us this week, right, Ben?
0: Absolutely. I, I suppose the only thing I should say is to remind our listeners that we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. And in the meantime, if you want to stay in touch with the rest of Chatham House's work, obviously, given the circumstances there is a lot going on in the house around the situation in Afghanistan among many other things please do check all of that out on our website www.chathamhouse.org until next time thanks so much for listening
1: thank you